Hi, I'm Aditi, and this is Brett. And this is Full Stack Food, a show about food and innovation, and robots and marketplaces, and a variety of other tech innovation. Welcome to the show, everyone. Brett, we talk to a lot of startups here about how they want to change the world. When you're meeting with a founder, what makes you believe that they can actually do it? Oh, man, it's such a good question. I mean, we ask that of every founder, and you all have heard it in you know our Startup Corner segment, where one of the questions we ask those founders is, how are you going to take over the world? So we love that. And maybe... I'll tell you why we ask that question, why that's important. We want companies when we invest as a fund that have that giant vision, because when we invest, we want outsized returns and outsized outcomes. While it might sound cool, like a $10 million exit's not great for a fund. We need those billion dollar exits for the financials to work for what we do. And so that's kind of why we ask it. Because if you don't have that big vision as a founder, you're never going to get there. Most founders will never get there anyways. And Steph, is it about the people and that intangible quality about them? I think to a certain extent, yes, it's hard to tell, which is why we spend a lot of time digging into people's experience. And when I say experience, I don't necessarily mean where they've worked or what degrees they have. I mean, what is their life experience? What have they Mm -hmm. overcome or why are they passionate about what they're working on? As a journalist, I can tell you that often we're looking for the same types of skills. Is this a startup that has legs? Is this a founder who can bring that startup to the next level? And our guest today was one of those founders whom I met in 2016. And I feel like I saw those qualities in him and the company. They've truly revolutionized agriculture. And our question of this episode is probably similar to the question that he and his co-founder confronted. Can farmers use tech to take on big ag companies. Well, what do we mean by that? There are just a few big agriculture companies that own the inputs that farmers need to grow their crops, from seeds to fertilizer to chemicals like pesticides. And traditionally, the pricing around those inputs has been pretty opaque until our guests came into the picture. Today, we're chatting with Charles Barron, who, along with Amol Deshpande, founded Farmers Business Network. The company began in 2014 as a platform for farmers to trade information about the prices they're paying for those inputs so they could level the information disparity in the industry. And it's grown into so much more, Brett. It has. It's one of the big name brand startups in the food tech world. There's only a couple that we have that are these big unicorns that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars. And they're one that everybody points to that, frankly, we need to have be successful in the food tech world because it's going to blaze a path for more and more startups. And they already have blazed a path for startups. And it's interesting, Steph, when you hear him talk, I mean, the passion to advocate for farmers really runs through him and the company. I think that it's a great example of having empathy for the people that you're solving the problem for makes a huge difference and wanting to innovate there, wanting to push boundaries and kind of rub some people the wrong way if you're trying to do something truly different. Well, let's take a look at some of the hot topics trending in food and innovation. We're starting off with a topic we have talked about a lot on this show, ghost kitchens. While it's a hot space that has a lot of competition and funding, some recent reports also show a dark side to the industry. The Wall Street Journal has been covering some of the troubles facing a SoftBank-backed company called Reef. The company originally started out as a parking lot network and now operates ghost kitchens as well. The journal reports that one reef kitchen experienced two fiery accidents in four months, resulting in 
One cook getting third-degree burns that were so bad she couldn't work. Still, the company has contracts with fast food chains like Wendy's and Burger King, and that it's increased its food revenue 600% from 2020 to 2021, reaching $12 million in September of 2021. Brett, is this a cautionary tale or a one-off story? You know, when you first brought up this topic for today, the cautionary tale I thought we were going to get into is do the economics of ghost kitchens work right now, not the, the safety elements of it. And so I think that, I mean, this obviously the safety elements of anything in the food space need to be table stakes. Well, can I ask a question about that, Brett? Do ghost kitchens have the same kind of safety rules, like governmental regulations that a typical restaurant kitchen would have? So my understanding is that to be a commercial kitchen, which all ghost kitchens have to be, they do have to follow all those same regulations. You know, maybe as a startup, you're trying to bootstrap it and iterate and get things up a little bit quicker. And But I imagine if you dig deep enough, there are accidents within every major restaurant chain or brand or, you know, things getting cut, things getting burned, things, you know, things like this happening. To me, it might be more of a one-off not to downplay the situation or the, the severity of it, but I think it might be a one-off. It'll be interesting to see how this ecosystem progresses. Well, next, a team of scientists from the University of Lisbon with funding from the Good Food Institute have launched the Algae to Fish Project to cultivate sea bass fillet cells to recreate sea bass, but without the bones or mercury or microplastics that often are found in fish. The team is using 3D printing to create the scaffolding for the fish made from algae and plants and then adding more nutrition like omega-3s. The algae and plant material will also be used to make the fish taste more similar to sea bass. Brett, I would think with fish, it's a texture that would also pose a big challenge to recreate. I mean, there's so many challenges in or around this world, but like, yeah, I mean, alternatives, plant-based alternatives, one of the biggest challenges is texture. And Steph makes fun of me for saying mouthfeel, but like the mouthfeel, right? When you bite into it. scaffolding again. Yeah. Yeah. And we've talked about this on prior episodes around I think, Steph, you brought up, like, what's the perception of the flavor of peas in as your protein? Like, what do you think is harder to convince consumers of, algae or peas? Like, it almost feels like another level of, like, trying to convince consumers that it's going to taste all right. Such an interesting space. And finally, candy brand Starburst is out with its first gelatin-free gummy candy. The new plant-based gummies are available in a mixed bag of four classic flavors, strawberry, cherry, orange, and lemon. Starburst also recently launched its first Air Gummies line, which aerates its candies to create a fluffier texture. Guys, when the plant-based movement starts hitting snacks and candy brands, is that a pretty notable sign that it's here to stay? Does this mean it's healthy for me to eat Starburst now? Absolutely. I think so too. If we can make a case for that. Are we going pink? Is that like everybody's Red. universal favorite? Orange. Ooh. Ooh. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Do we have to add someone who chooses yellow to the podcast? <laughs> I actually think orange actually might be my favorite, but I thought the assumed one was pink. Everybody's favorite was pink. I mean, pink looks the best. <laughs> I mean. Yeah. My palette has changed over time. When I was a kid, pink was my favorite. And now I think that my Starburst palette has moved to orange. Oh. Didi, back to your question. I think that the plants moving That wasn't Didi's in- question? <laughs> no. Not that I recall, but I don't remember yeah. my question anymore. I'm just thinking about orange and pink. I may have blacked out during the flavor conversation. <laughs> I think that to me, the big indicator with the plant-based movement Sorry. hitting snacks and candy brands is these are low cost snacks, right? And mm. so to me, it's an indicator that some of the plant inputs are becoming cheap enough to be in things that only cost three, four dollars. Like my question on it, 
is like honestly just an end consumer that's eating Starburst care what the heck is in their Starburst. You know, I said my thing <laughs> tongue in cheek at the beginning. Like if you're eating Starburst. And so the only like valid reason that a big CPG company is going to do this, there's only two reasons. One, and this is one thing that CPGs do all the time that I don't think people realize, like they create new things just so they have something to talk about. So they will do something not because they actually care or it's better or whatever. It just gives them something to advertise and marketing around. And that's cool. Like it gives them something to talk about. The other reason that they would do it is that it makes makes the product cheaper to produce. So getting to like Steph's point of like, it's probably an indicator that this is becoming mainstream enough where it is less expensive. I was going to use Brett's argument to call my mom and tell her I could have eaten all those Starbursts during Halloweens of years past. Well, coming up, we're going to be talking to the co-founder of a company that's brought Silicon Valley and the Farm Belt together to tackle some of the biggest challenges facing farmers. In the land of food tech, there's a lot of innovation going on. Still, it is rare to find a company that upends an entire industry in such a meaningful way that it threatens big legacy operators to their core. We've seen it with Uber and the taxi industry and Airbnb and big hotel chains. In agriculture, that disruptor is Farmers Business Network. Since its inception in 2014, FBN has challenged big ag companies, the conglomerates that produce inputs like seed, fertilizer, and chemicals, by shedding light on pricing disparities and the lack of transparency in the industry. How did they do it? On a very high level, by bringing an entrepreneurial mindset to some of the deepest challenges in agriculture. FBN's co-founders Charles Barron and Amol Deshpande have successfully bridged the gap between Silicon Valley and the nation's heartland. For Charles, that meant getting an eye-opening education at what life on a farm is like. And while the Silicon Valley native never stepped foot on a farm until his 20s, once he did, he could never look back. I was a pretty normal kid uh, here in uh, the Bay Area, grew up in Palo Alto. And, you know, but out here, this was sort of, I grew up uh, during the dot-com era, but had lots and lots of friends who were, you know, either parents were entrepreneurs, my cousins were entrepreneurs. It's just kind of in the, in the water. It really is out here. And it's just, you know, startups and entrepreneurship are kind of, in a sense, a, either a way of life or a way of looking at the world. And it's about big ideas and it's about how to apply technology to meaningful problems to help change the world and looking at the world and not sort of accepting the status quo. It's a very different culture from the heartland, and you seem to have found a way to bridge the two. I brought a lot of farmers to the Bay Area over the years, actually. We, we hosted some tours where we brought groups of our growers out, took them around, went to Steve Jobs' house, went to the Google campus, we went to the Tesla factory, went to the Tesla dealership and drove Teslas. That was a lot of fun. Farmers love that. And I think it really helps people understand, you know, how we approach problems and what it means to think in very long-term ways and then about what the fundamental role of technology can be in transforming the world for consumers, in this case, farmers as consumers. I would love to know what farmers thought when they came here and did all of those things. It's almost like they're in a foreign country doing a tour, right, when you're describing all those things. What were their impressions? Well, I think, you know, we spend a lot of time in the farm country. You know, we've spent a lot of time in the Midwest. And obviously, FBN, actually, our California office is only a small part of FBN. It's a few dozen people out of a company of 800. And vast majority of our employees are in rural places, in rural communities, working with our farmers. There's sort of two languages and two cultures, you know, between the startup world out here and then and the farm belt. And it's a big part of our job to bridge those two cultures, bring the best of Silicon Valley to the Midwest, bring the best of the Midwest to Silicon Valley. 
And then on the other way, you know, our farmers would tell us, you know, that they really didn't understand what startups were all about or how venture capital worked or why you invested in technology and growth before profitability. So we started a program a couple years ago where we brought a few dozen guys out. It was a tremendous amount of fun. We had our investors come in to meet them. We went over to Google, toured Google, toured the sites of Stanford and went over to Steve Jobs of the Apple garage and then the Fairchild garage over on Charleston Road. And, you know, it, it really kind of underscores the point of all these things are about a mile from each other and this incredible ecosystem that does exist in Silicon Valley and how that's helped drive innovation, you know, for the last several decades. I want to start and go back to the genesis of Farmers Business Network and talk to you a little bit about your own trajectory. You went back east for your undergrad. You went to Dartmouth. Did you study computer science or anything technology related? No, I studied history. I was always interested in history and kind of the intersection of natural resources and political systems and government and the role that natural resources in the world of you know, both environmental and energy and that kind of systems thinking has played throughout history. Was agriculture on your radar at all? I had never been to a farm until I was 22, 23, and was chasing my girlfriend around in Nebraska, a now wife. My future brother-in-law uh, is a farmer in Arapahoe, Nebraska, and that was my first time actually ever getting out to a real commodity production farm. I was just completely blown away. It was so foreign to me, so foreign to my world and the world that I knew. But, you know, for really incredible reasons. You know, the, the life of a farmer is so difficult, so challenging. I had never thought much about it as to what it takes or what it means to actually be a farm. Kind of thought, well, you, you go to school, you get a job in an office, and, and that's what a tough job is. That's what an interesting job is. And then you go out to a farm, and all those misconceptions go right out the window. That's what was so much fun about seeing the life of a farmer. It seemed like that experience on the farm when you were 21, 22 years old stuck with you. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is that really stuck with you and how that ended up blossoming? Yeah, so it was an enormously impactful experience for me. You know, first and foremost, that was just eye-opening. It's too, I think a lot of people probably think farming is kind of an antiquated profession. It's sort of a, a legacy of something we have to do. It's not a modern thing. It's not technological. It's not scientific. And they have no idea what farming is actually about. I can say those were some of my preconceptions when I got out to a farm. And so when I got to, you know, Arapaho and met Anthony and just saw how unbelievably sophisticated farming is and how many disciplines you have to manage, it blew me away. And also a couple other, you know, key things. So, you know, the life of a farm and a farmer, you are getting up first thing in the morning. Sometimes they're up all night tending cattle or tending calves. Then you're up first thing in the morning, you're feeding animals. Then you're out in the fields, you're fixing equipment. You are marketing commodities. You are talking to your banker, talking to your lawyer, dealing with your family members, trying to hire folks in a rural area where hiring is hard. And you know you might be managing commodities across multiple different categories. You might be marketing cattle, then you're marketing corn, then you're marketing oats. You're dealing with contracts, you're dealing with the elevator. Phenomenally complicated at all times. And what makes it so different from most businesses it's one person or two people who are doing all those different jobs. And then number two is that you, you look at that, you look at how hard the job is, and you realize you know, most farms, they're rural areas, you're disaggregated, you're disconnected, you don't have the support infrastructure that a business does or a professional does when they work in a business, you don't have this world of consultants who, who work for you, or you may not utilize those folks, or maybe you can't afford them. And so you're on your own, fundamentally. 
And then the third thing that's most striking is then realizing the, the global interconnected nature of the business. So, you know, I always tell the story that, you know, I was riding around the green cart and we were listening to radio updates about uh, marketing reports and the announcer in Western Nebraska on the radio was saying, okay, there's rain in Brazil, so beans are down a point. And I'm like, what in the world does Brazil have to do with central Nebraska? How are those two worlds connected? And it's because, you know, you, you operate as a farmer in a global commodities market the forces that drive your prices are completely beyond your control. They could be the weather. They could be global macroeconomics. It could be whatever China's doing with its food sector or its imports. Completely beyond your control. You deal with these mega behemoth, consolidated, sometimes oligopolist input companies and very consolidated retail infrastructure. And then you sell grain into a highly concentrated grain infrastructure as well. So what does that leave you with? And so as a consequence, farmers... You know, you see that farmers do all the work, take all the risk, and get the lowest reward, and that is a very, very tough situation. So that, that was sort of, for me, the inspiration for why I wanted to be in agriculture and why it was so fascinating. And ultimately, you know, for me, what really resonated when we started FBN. So that triggered your interest in agriculture. How did you link up with Amol to begin FBN? We started the company along with several other folks, and Amol had a long background as well in food and agriculture. He grew up in the Chicago area, went to the University of Illinois, later went to Cornell for business school. He actually, his first company was starting a fish farming company. So he had been a food entrepreneur going back to right out of college. His father was an environmental engineer, and he'd always kind of been interested in, in agriculture. And then, and then he went to Cargill and, then, and really then started pioneering food and ag investing on Sand Hill Road with Kleiner Perkins. And so Amol and I had known each other. I had always been a big fan of his and the way he had incubated companies at KP. You know, the way things work in, in Silicon Valley is you just, that's the, the mixing of the ecosystem. And we got to know each other and started looking at this problem and, and got to know a group of farmers who were really interested in grouping data together so that they could get more transparency in the market and solve problems. In this case, it was one seed dealer with another farmer who was his customer, and the customer was demanding to be able to see what the seed dealer was actually doing on their farm. So that's kind of the way things happen. Can you talk a little about ag tech and food tech is a relatively new vertical in the venture community. You all and a couple other names are the really early on, and you're only 2013, which is crazy to say early, but I always say like the <laughs> the modern food tech or modern ag tech world and venture world started when Climate Corp got acquired by Monsanto. It opened up a lot of eyes back in 2011. Do you think that farmers are starting to get overloaded with startups pitching them a new <laughs> thing of technology now today? I would say that was going on 10, you know, when we started seven years ago as well. In fact, it was one of the dominant themes that we saw. And you always saw you know, if you go back to that era, lots of talk of drones, satellite imagery, all kinds of, you know, high tech applications, you know, Internet of Things was a buzzword back then. So all this technology was getting pushed on the farm or a, the assumption was that I, I come out with this feature or this gadget and that technology automatically will gain market traction with farmers because its benefits are obvious. Right. That quickly meets the acid test of reality with what the actual ROI of a, of a technology is. So you go back to that era, and there was actually a tremendous amount of technology going out to the farm. You go back to this challenge that a farmer has of having to manage all these disciplines, having to be 
an agronomist, having to be a marketer, having to understand chemistry, having to uh, understand livestock and animal health. Very different disciplines. And now you layer in robotics, and now you layer in remote sensing, and now you layer in all these other applications and services, and it was completely overwhelming for a lot of folks. And so then what companies were doing is then they were overcharging. They were saying, well, pay me five bucks an acre, pay me 10 bucks an acre, and I'll give you all the answers. So when FBN came out, you know, number one, we knew technology was as much of a burden onto the farm as it was an enabler. And so a big part of our life was to try and simplify, organize information, make it easy to use, and get to the real value of the technology and what the real economic value was as quickly as possible. By participating in a system like FBN, we could unlock 5, 10, 20, 25% savings on inputs, sometimes 50% savings on inputs. That's tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars of value. It's far, far in excess of these marginal improvements that other technologies were purporting. Even though what you outlined was such a pain point, right? And the value proposition you're giving these farmers is, look, we're creating a platform where you guys can talk to each other and tell each other, what prices you're paying for what inputs. I mean, it sounds so tremendously powerful. A lot of the companies that you're trying to disrupt were not just household names, but across generations of families. How much of a challenge was it to get that buy-in from farmers, especially early on when you don't have that many people on the platform, and also to get them to adopt yet another piece of technology? Well, I think you have to build trust, and you have to build trust And that is a never-ending process, and your job is never done on that. So it's not like you do one thing and and then your job is done, then you get, get to move on to step two. You're always building trust, and you're always creating trust with your members. And so for us, that meant we were creating a network of farmers. That network was going to benefit our members. The value of participating in that network was going to always be brought back to the members so they would see it. And if they didn't see the value, they were not going to participate. And were you making phone calls, like cold calls and things like that? Like, how are you doing it? Well, we were doing some of that, but we were doing a whole lot of driving around the country. I spent a ton of time and still do, you know, visiting farmers and going out to shows and hosting meetings. There is no substitute for it in agriculture. I think that's another thing in in the startup world that easy misconception is that I'm going to throw up my website. I'm going to buy some Google ads or buy some Facebook ads and my job is done. Can you go a little bit deeper there? So oftentimes, especially in the food and ag tech world, you hear like, is Silicon Valley the right place to start a food tech or ag tech company or should it be done in the Midwest? You know, and I'm curious your thoughts there where, you know, do you need to have those boots on the ground or can any, you know, somebody from, from Google, ex Google, I just have a ag tech idea without knowing anything about ag tech. I'm going to start it because I'm a great technologist. So I would say there's pluses and minuses. In Silicon Valley, you have engineers and you have capital. You don't have the cultural context of the farm. And you can't be in just one world. And I think it's really helpful to be in both worlds. And when we started FBN, our first office was not in Silicon Valley. Our first office was in Davenport, Iowa. And then we had a Sioux Falls office. And so we had an office close to our farmers for our field and sales and customer support and that was really became our, our locus with our farmers well before we ever had our engineering office here in California. So there's pluses and minuses to each add something to the mix. And Silicon Valley, again, you get access to capital, you get that startup mindset, you get folks who want to work on early stage startups and, and a lot of technologists, data scientists, great engineers who are out here. But if you just do that, you'll really not build a real connection with your growers. So you have to be doing both. And I think it's essential. And you came face to face with these folks and they're looking at you and you told them what? Well, at the beginning, the first thing was we created a data network for farms to crowdsource data. 
and that they could crowdsource that data. That would reveal comparative performance. They could benchmark their farm. That would reveal, we use machine learning off that to then do optimized seed placement. So we did a lot with seed soil matching. So we'd look at soil types and hybrid performance by soil type, and we'd match that to fields. So you do a custom analysis for every field. We'd also use that to do aggregated network intelligence. So FBN Seed Finder is the largest library of seed performance ever created, all crowdsourced by farmers. There's tens of millions of acres of yield data that farmers have crowdsourced and contributed into the Seed Finder system to reveal real-world performance. And effectively what that does is it turns the real world into a plot trail. It allows you to, instead of just looking at a few strips on your farm or a, a university plot or a company plot, you look at the entire world. And that was the first product that we built. And so farmers were crowdsourcing that because they wanted that to exist. They wanted the information. They knew they weren't getting that information from the seed companies because of the industry structure, highly consolidated, non-transparent industry in seed and chemical. So they needed to have an independent source of information. That was the early work that we did. We still do that today. And as you're growing and you're getting more and more farmers subscribed to your network and you're becoming more of a threat, to these big companies, what was the reaction from them? Well, that was the funny thing was how when we were very small, relative to where we are now, the reaction was so outrageous to us, but, you know, telling in many ways. And we held our first farmer to farmer conference uh, in 2015, in part because we, the industry wouldn't let us say things. We couldn't even show logos of market consolidation in the industry. We got blocked from certain conferences for even having slides that showed that. And we said, we got to create our own conference so that we can talk about what's actually going on. So we created our conference, Farmer to Farmer. At that time, we'd started doing pricing analysis on inputs and what was actually happening in the input world. The farmers were asking us, just as we had done on seed, they said, okay, now look at prices in CAM and seed. So we started collecting invoices. We started doing aggregated product pricing analysis on CAM and seed prices. And you saw these just enormous things start popping out in the data right away. What are you seeing then? Well, at that time we were seeing, you'd see one retailer selling a product for almost, you know, double to two different farms. You'd see farms paying two, three, four times as much as each other, even we've now seen seven times as much as each other between two states. You'd see in seed pricing, the same seed being sold for double within a state because of the, this issue of pricing zones we can talk about. So that data was just exploding once you saw it. You know, once you saw it and once you started aggregating price data, you saw these enormous disparities in the market that was really a bunch of price arbitraging. The industry was doing regional arbitraging and price discrimination where they were charging farmers different prices based on their farm size, buying history, what they were bundling, what they weren't buying. And we're not talking five, 10%, we're talking 20, 50% sometimes. So well beyond a normal discount. And were you hearing from these companies as you got bigger and bigger? And what were they saying to you or doing to you? Yeah, so the first reaction was we announced that we were gonna then sell product at Farmer to Farmer, our very first Farmer to Farmer. and. You know, something like a few dozen farmers, I think it was about, you know, like like 60 farmers filled out a form saying they were interested. And we thought, oh my gosh, they're really, you know, folks are really excited about this. Within three weeks of saying we would do that, the industry trade publications immediately posted articles attacking FBN, saying the devil known as price transparency is, you know, is back. And that's literally what they called it. The devil of price transparency would think that would be a good thing for farmers. Yeah, so if you're a consumer... And if your industry position or point of view is that price transparency is the devil, that's not a pro-consumer 
approach. And that's not going to benefit consumers. And farmers are consumers. They're not getting treated as consumers. And so did that that actually end up backfiring in the sense that did you start getting more traction because of that reaction? Well, I mean, it caused a lot of things to happen. All publicity is good publicity, Aditi. Come on. (laughs) I know I should know that, right? Yeah, it caused a lot of things. So there was certainly we got a bunch of emails from folks going, wow, what are you guys doing? You must be onto something and people showing up. But it also intimidated a lot of people from working with us. And it really started kind of the public trend among these companies of you'd have retailers threatening manufacturers saying, if we see you selling to FBN, we'll cut you out of the retail channel. You have large manufacturers who are licensors tell other companies who were, you know, potentially licensees who wanted to sell through FBN, we'll cut you off if you sell to FBN. We had people put it into contracts specifically, you cannot sell to FBN or you cannot deal with FBN. We then had these companies send threatening letters to farmers saying FBN is selling product, but it's been watered down. Literally, there was one of the majors sent, it's in the Wall Street Journal article, one of the majors said, FBN selling you product, but we hear it's watered down, you shouldn't buy from them. Selling our product and it's watered down. So, I mean, it's just preposterous attacks. And this was all happening behind the scenes. And then what happened when we got to Canada was out in the open. And so we were hearing about all this, of course, as we were in the market. We went to Canada in 2018. We launched FBN Direct. We bought a company called Yorkton Distributors. We went and talked to all Yorkton suppliers. Before we closed the deal, they all said they'd continue to supply. Within three days of us announcing the deal, they were effectively boycotted by all the suppliers. And in Canada, as you mentioned, I mean, there's actually been government investigations into this. How did you fight back in the States? How did you fight back against these, you know, they're using all of their, the the big sticks, right? Yeah. (laughs) Well, some of that I can't discuss um, because, you know, obviously there's some some ongoing uh, legal issues. Sure. <laughs> you sure you don't want to discuss ongoing legal issues? <laughs> right. Now's your chance. Yeah, right. We'll cut that part out, I promise. <laughs> I think uh, our general counsel will uh, hit me with a stick. <laughs> so, uh, you know, obviously, so the Canadian Competition Bureau, you know, has taken the matter enormously seriously, which we're, we're very happy that this is getting its due. And I think that's really as much as we can ask right now, because it does, it it hurts farmers. The people who pay the price for this are not just the innovators or the innovative companies. Ultimately, it's the farmers. They pay the price in much higher prices. And so that's why competition matters. It's fundamental to a free market. And how did you get that message in the U.S.? How did you try to kind of bring farmers back who felt intimidated and those tactics were working on them? Well, that's why farmers wanted FBN to exist. I mean, you go back to the, be- the, the very beginning of FBN, the first handful of farmers who, who helped create FBN mm-hmm. wanted FBN to exist and wanted to create FBN because they didn't trust the industry and they didn't trust where the, the information they were getting. So in the very first example, our first very first thing we did was you know, seed intelligence between farms who wanted to share data with each other because they didn't trust the data they were getting from the seed company. They didn't trust it from the university because the seed company was paying for the trial. They wanted to get better data and they didn't trust their dealer. There haven't been a tremendous number of really large, visible ag tech, food tech success stories yet. And I would say that over the last five years and really the last three years, it's been a sector that has garnered a lot more interest than it did even six, seven years ago. And I'm curious, I actually always think that like you guys, FBN, a couple other big players that have raised a lot of money actually need to be successful for the rest of the startups that are coming behind because just important signaling. And do you think about that ever? Does that matter to you? Um, I'm curious if you feel extra pressure because you are one of the early companies in or around the space in like the more modern age of ag tech. 
I think we feel the extra pressure because we've been the ones to, to get hit with the baseball bats that running sure. through the windows sometimes. 100%. <laughs> but, you know, that's our job. You know, really, we, th- we view that as our job. Our job is that we're building a network of, of growers. We want to benefit our members and we want to represent transparency. And that means we say and do things that others in the industry either wouldn't or couldn't. And that's kind of our role. But as far as others, yeah, I mean, we want to make it easier to innovate. And I think one of the big problems in agriculture, if you are an innovator or a startup, is that it's hard to access farmers. And that is a big thing as well, going back to the differences between other companies or other industries. If you are not meeting face-to-face with farmers, if you're not a presence in rural America, and if you're not doing that in an authentic and meaningful way, that's not, you know, not just marketing, but that's not really who you are, then, then it's not going to work. And because farming is so disaggregated and rural and geographically dispersed, it's expensive. You have to build a large presence. That was one of the things we found out very early in FBN. We, of course, you know, thought, hey, maybe there's an easy button here. We built our platform and we went to some co-ops and some other folks who really wanted to, you know, they said, oh, this is great. We want this technology to have all our members to have this technology. And we're going to sign up a couple hundred farms to FBN. And we were like, great, you know, job done. And then, you know, they said, well, there's one condition. We only want to show the products for sale that we sell. And we don't want data going into a, you know, aggregated pool that anyone else could see competing products. And we said, well, that's kind of contrary to the whole point and purpose of FBN. So we realized very quickly, no one was going to do your job for you. When it came to distribution and reaching your customers, you had to do that. So we invested early in building our own sales team, our own distribution infrastructure. We have 35 warehouses we run around the world. We have hundreds of sales folks. We have 450 farmer partner dealers out there. It's an enormous expense. It's amazing what you have built. You just raised your 10th round. Not only did you double your valuation to, I can't even say a staggering 4 billion, nearly 4 billion. ADM is an investor. What prompted you to invite them to the cap table? Well, you know, we've gotten to know ADM over the years, uh, especially through our grain marketing work. There was tremendous interest from them in building out more sustainable markets and finding ways to connect the grain that they were buying and then selling to food manufacturers, you know, all the way back with various sustainability attributes attached to it. You know, it's a great partnership for us because it combines the digital infrastructure of FBN's farmer network with the physical infrastructure and scale of ADM as one of the world's largest buyers of grain. So in hearing you talk about all the ways that you have grown and your tentacles of FBN are really far reaching now in the agricultural economy, it makes sense that a recent Wall Street Journal article called you the Amazon of agriculture. Is that how you guys see yourselves? Look, Amazon's a very successful company, and it's a nice comparison. It's not exactly how we see ourselves, though. You know, we really view ourselves as, first and foremost, a network of farmers. And it's from that network that we drive benefits for our members and for our our farmer participants. We do that. E-commerce and online is one of the ways we do that as FBN. We do that in financial innovation. We do it in insurance innovation and sustainability and marketing. So all those are aspects. So we really view it as a platform. We're building a platform that a farm can use to run itself more profitably and that the ecosystem can use to run the industry more profitably. For farmers, we, we're their partner to make them more profitable to a novel input company or an innovator. We can be the channel to market and to a grain buyer, we can be the source to tap, you know, go back to our farmers, offer them better income opportunities from merchants. And so that's the role of the FBN ecosystem. And I think it's a little different than just a comparison to Amazon. Charles, I just like that you basically said, you know, Amazon's a cool company, but that, that cool little company isn't anything like what we're building. 
<laughs> it was essentially what I heard when you know when Aditi asked you. Well, I, I would. I, I, that, that little company, Amazon's yeah, all right. It's a but I mean, trillion dollar company with a fleet of aircraft. And, you're uh, not going to the moon or anything? a movie studio and a, and an AWS infrastructure in the world's largest. Yeah, I mean they they do a few things. That was the answer I heard. Was you know they're all right, but don't compare us to them because we're going to be way bigger and better than they are. And that's what those later stage investors like to hear is, hey, we're we're going to be bigger than Amazon. And looking ahead to the future, the inner CNBC reporter in me has to ask you about going public. I know you guys have said some commentary to that effect. When you think about the next step as far as funding, what are your thoughts going into it and the prospect of going public? Well, we've always said we're going to be an independent company. And, you know, that means we've always said that farmers for years asked us, are you going to get acquired by one of these big guys? And we always said no. So we've always viewed it that our eventual path was to be a public company. And the investors that we've got who are behind FBN are, you know, just world class at being able to help us now and in the future as a public company. So having the fidelities of the world who led this round and BlackRock and T. Rowe and, you know, just a tremendous group of investors who are very long-term and, and understand that world as well as this. Obviously, I can't say anything in terms of the timing of, of that, but you know, I think you know, we've always viewed that the best way for FBN to exist is as a truly independent company that can control its own destiny and therefore drive the most benefits back to its members. Cool. All right, Charles, you ready? The lightning round. This is the pressure cooker of the podcast. This is the really hard part. You're only allowed one word answers. All right. All right. What's one word you would use to describe the food supply chain today? Controlled. What's your favorite crop? Corn. (laughs) What's harder, toddlers or startups? Toddlers. (laughs) Currently, what is the most interesting trend in agriculture today? I I think... One word, one word. Wow. Connections between consumers and farm. <laughs> Wait a minute. I'm no English major, but connections between... No, that was... Five, was five. that one? I'm not a math major, so uh, I can't count. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I got. Full Stack Food is brought to you by the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator. Techstars Farm to Fork is a mentorship-driven accelerator program working with the startups that are focused on the food value chain from on-farm to supply chain, manufacturing, all the way to the future of food retail. We provide mentorship, capital, and a network that can help take your startup from where you are today and accelerate it to its next level. If you're an early stage tech founder that has applications into the food system, reach out today to learn more about our program. Here's this week's Startup Corner. Today I'm here with Jeff, the CEO, co-founder of eFish. Jeff, what pain point are you solving over at eFish? Hey, Brett. Over at eFish, we're working in the seafood industry, and there's two main problems that we're looking to solve. When we launched, we were mainly looking at solving the efficiency issue, and we're now starting to lean into helping with the education aspect of it. So from efficiency, 80% of seafood in the U.S. is imported from abroad. These products are just traveling all around the world before it gets to our dinner plate, which just leads to a suboptimal product. And from an education standpoint, 70% of seafood consumers don't feel comfortable working with the product at home. And so we really feel like there's an opportunity there to, to help customers understand how to prepare products and to feel comfortable working with it. I've actually bought some stuff off eFish and uh, it was an amazing product. How are you solving the problem? When we first launched, we were really looking at solving that efficiency problem. And so we've built out a pretty unique supply chain where we have fishermen who are spread throughout the entire country. They're in Maine, Massachusetts, New York, North Carolina, Florida, up and down the California coastline, and they ship it out directly to our customers. So in a large part, This is a product that's harvested to order, packaged within 24 hours, and shipped overnight. So this is like 
unparalleled quality that many Michelin star chefs that we work with you know, love receiving because of that quality. Name drop. Oh, well, some of the chefs that we work with are uh, Chef John George out in New York City. is a huge supporter of ours. Uh, Chef Jose Andres is another one who enjoys serving our products on his dinner table. That's awesome. What's the big vision? How are you going to take over the world? For us, it's all about relationships. This is an industry that relies on having strong relationships with chefs, with fishermen, with harvesters, fishmongers, all across the country. And for us, taking over the world is going to be about collaborating with these folks. And we believe that if we do right by these stakeholders and give credit where credit's due, then we'll be unstoppable. Today, I'm here with John, CEO and co-founder of Culinary Flow. John, thanks for being here. What's the pain point that you're solving over there? So Culinary Flow is an e-commerce platform, and we are helping local food and beverage entrepreneurs with a toolbox to sell direct and make their menu available local or nationally without having a tech team, without needing to give up margin to marketplaces so they can scale their business profitably. How are you solving it? So we provide basically a platform to spin up quickly your digital presence and make your menu available to consumers through a direct channel that you control. And what's the big vision here? How are you going to take over the world? So the big vision is that by doing this, we think we can create scale, meaningful scale. With that scale, we can turn around and pass that value back to our merchants in the form of lower costs for processing transactions and also to their consumers, more access at a lower price point, high quality food, which we think is a big thing for everybody. So going back to our question, can farmers use tech to take on big ag companies? Guys, what do you think? I mean, I think it's the only way you can. You're not going to be able to outscale the biggest players out there. They have so much infrastructure that is needed in the food world. So the only way to take them on is by being better at tech. I think there's a lot of discussion in tech about technology democratizing access to different things. And I think that's what it does for farmers is it democratizes access to pricing, to input information, to supply chain info. And it seems like they've successfully, I mean, disrupted in such a big way. And yet he's talking about how they're still in the middle of lawsuits that they cannot talk about with these big companies. I mean, anytime you're disrupting anybody, you're going to get sued. If you're a founder and haven't been sued yet, you are not yet disrupting people. I've been sued multiple times in my entrepreneurial journey. We've had multiple of our portfolio companies, once they start actually making headway against incumbents, that's when the lawsuits happen. And so for those of you that are entrepreneurs out there, the first time you get sued, you're going to freak out. I know it. I did also and lost sleep for weeks. But it's a part of the journey. As soon as you start challenging somebody and they're scared of you, one of the tools in their toolbox is to come at you with their lawyers and their resources. That's fascinating. I did not know that. It's a badge of honor, right? Every time I've been sued, I've won. Just as a, just clear <laughs> the air here. So, but I have been sued multiple times running companies. But Brett's won. That's a great note to end this episode. See you guys back here next week. <laughs>